Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Luke and I'm joining the bunker with no one. Yes, Chris is out sick this month and it's pretty bad too. He sent me a Snapchat and it looked like Jabba the Hutt had another Jabba the Hutt growing out of his head because he was so sick. It's been crazy for me too. I've been snowed under at work and I'm sure you've been that way too. But I hope you're all feeling great because we're about to dive into the deep end again. I want to thank James and Cindy from Nashville for buying us around. I want to thank Hendrik from Parts Unknown Belgium for buying us a six-pack. Hendrik, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. If you want to buy us around, head on over to the website and hit the donate button. Well, that's enough of the business. We've got a great battle today. It's an epic clash between the two largest religions in the world. It's a holy war for the Battle of Constantinople. But before we can get into that, we've got to do the most important thing and crack open a few cold ones. Okay, today we're drinking Ephes, the only beer I know of that is actually brewed in Istanbul, Turkey. Ephes is a pilsner and it comes in at 5% alcohol by volume and I've been cheating. I actually drank a few of these last week and they were damn good. I was really surprised. It's a lot like Corona and I give it about 3.5 bullets. Get yourself out there, give it a shot if you want something different. And now let's recount the epic last battle of Byzantium, the empire that had lasted over a thousand years and then it all came crashing down. This is the story of the crash. Constantinople. It was the capital of the Greek-speaking Byzantine Empire. Today it's known as Istanbul and it's the capital of Turkey. In its 1,123 year history, the city had been besieged 23 times. It had fallen once. The Christian knights of the Fourth Crusade had breached the old walls. The Byzantines considered themselves heirs of the Roman Empire. And in 1453, the city was defended by a curious mix of Europeans from across Christendom. Venetians, Genoese, Catalans, Cretans, and even one Scotsman. The emperor himself was half Serbian and one quarter Italian. His name was appropriately Constantine. Over a thousand years before, the Roman Emperor Constantine had chosen Constantinople for his new Christian capital in 324 AD. It was the perfect site of a fortress, like God himself had chosen the site for his capital. The city had a perfect natural harbor shaped like an antler and called the Golden Horn as a consequence. It was built on a series of hills that provided natural fortifications. Not only was the site a natural fortress, but it is one of nature's natural choke points, allowing the possessor to control all trade into and out of the Bosphorus and the Black Sea. Once the land wall was completed, the city was impregnable for hundreds of years. The walls themselves ran for 12 miles and were about 40 feet tall. In its heyday... The wealth of the world flowed into Constantinople. Its population ballooned to over 500,000 people. Here's how one eyewitness described the city in 1040 A.D. Oh, what a splendid, beautiful city. 
how many churches there are in there, how many palaces raised by sheer labor in its broad ways and in its streets, how many works of art it would be wearisome to tell of the abundance of all the good things that flow there, of gold and silver and garments, of manifold fashion, of wine, of beautiful women. Ships are at all times putting in at this port, and the world brings their goods to Constantinople. End quote. But that was 400 years ago. In 1453, the city had fallen into poverty, the population hovering around 10,000. Think about that, from 500,000 people to just over 10,000. The process of decline had begun in March 1071. In August of that year, the emperor, Romanus Diogenes, set out to punish the Turks who had been raiding Christian Anatolia in modern-day eastern Turkey. He set out to end the raids once and for all. What he found was disaster. In the Battle of Manzikert, the Byzantine army was shattered by the defection of mercenary troops to the Muslim side. Emperor Romanus was forced to kiss the ground in front of the Sultan, who planted a foot on his neck to further humiliate the Byzantines. The Byzantines called the defeat at Manzikert the Terrible Day. After the battle, the Turkmen poured into Christian Anatolia with impunity, colonizing the Christian land comprising the eastern half of modern Turkey. After only 20 years, the Turks were already colonizing the Mediterranean coast. Village after village, town after town, farm after farm fell to the Turks. Finally, after another Byzantine defeat in 1176, the possibility of reconquering Anatolia was gone forever. Constantinople had lost its heartland of food production and manpower, and then another catastrophe befell the people of Constantinople. By the late 1100s, a large Italian community had taken root in Constantinople. The Genoese even had their own colony at Galata, a walled town across the Golden Horn Harbor right across from Constantinople. The Italians dominated trading in Constantinople and were so resented by the native Greek population, the Greeks actually attacked and destroyed Galata in 1183 and they massacred the entire Italian community in the process. In 1203, the Italians struck back during the Fourth Crusade. The Italians and their crusader allies breached the seawall in heavy fighting. An Italian puppet emperor was installed in the Constantinople throne. In April 1204, the crusaders comprehensively sacked the city. Large portions of the population were massacred. Whole sections of the city were burned. It was a direct inversion of Christ's commandment to give your life for your brother. One eyewitness remembered the destruction, quote, More houses were burned than even exist in the three largest cities of France. They brought horses and mules into the St. Sophia Church, the better to carry off the holy vessels and the engraved silver and the gold that they had torn from the throne and the pulpit and the furniture. And when some of these beasts slipped and fell, they ran them through with their swords, fouling the church with their blood and excrement. O oh, city, my city, I of all cities, you have drunk to the dregs the cup of the anger of the Lord. End quote. After this disaster, the Byzantine Empire was divided among the conquering crusaders, becoming a scattered collection of Frankish states and Italian colonies. Much of the population fled to modern-day Greece. The Byzantines regrouped at Nicaea. 
and reconquered Constantinople in 1261, but the city's infrastructure was in disrepair and disregard. It was falling, literally crumbling in their hands, and the Greeks tried to maintain a presence in Anatolia, but were pushed ever backwards by the onslaughting Turks. Soon, almost all of modern-day Turkey had fallen to the Muslim Turks. In 1280, the Ottomans arrived in Turkey, a tribal people that emerged from the Turkish ethnic group. They were a caste of illiterate Muslim warriors who ruled from the saddle like the Dothraki from Game of Thrones. They were ruled over by a warrior named Osman, who steadily drove back the Byzantine defenses, capturing the important city of Bursa after subjecting it to a seven-year-long siege. They just would not quit. The Ottomans would change the character of the Near East and the Balkans for centuries to come. Excellent organizers. Perhaps their chief advantage was to incorporate a professional standing army, but this was a professional army the world had never seen before. In the land of Turkey, where the shadows lie, Sultan Murat I conceived of a new military formation, a formation that would fill his armies with dedicated soldiers and give him the power to crush his enemies. He conceived, like a second Sauron, the idea of Defshirma, the tax in blood, whereby Christian child slaves were taken at regular intervals from the Balkan states. There, they were forcibly removed from their families and all they knew. They were converted to Islam and taught Turkish, and they were known as the Slaves of the Gate. And the Sultan organized them into infantry units called Janissaries. This was the first professional army in Europe since the time of the Romans. Gilmay Yomaz describes how the children were taken. Quote, the conscription process began upon the request for a new levy of children by the chief of the Janissaries. Such a decree was issued every three to four years indicating the number of boys needed and the place of recruitment. Once this was done, specially appointed Janissary officers were sent to Christian villages where they asked village priests for a list of baptized boys. Those who tried to hide children from the officers were strictly punished. Villagers sometimes attempted to prevent the boys from being conscripted by falsifying baptism registers, circumcising them, or declaring them married. The boys were herded like animals into the village center and selected. Orphans were not accepted because they were believed to lack a proper upbringing and to be greedy. By scrutinizing the list, the village priests provided... Well-brought-up boys of good birth only were selected. Then they were examined for bodily and facial perfection. When the desired number of boys had been chosen, they were organized into groups of 200 for transport to the capital. They were dressed in red clothing and a large white hat in order to discourage any escapes or kidnappings during the transfer. The Christian resentment can be understood through a popular folk song from the region. Be damned, Emperor! Thrice be damned! For the evil you have done and the evil you do! You catch and you shackle the old and the archpriests in order to take their children as janissaries. Their parents weep, their sisters and brothers too. And I cry until it pains me, and as long as I live I shall cry, for last year it was my son, and this year my brother. End quote. To Christians... This was the ultimate affront, the stealing of their own children, who became the sword of oppression for their Muslim overlords. I want you to imagine it today. Say the government, which is comprised of people from another religion, who have conquered and taxed you for generations, commands you to bring your son to Walmart, or your brother to Walmart. What do you do? 
Do you take them? If you don't, the police come to your house and they kill you and they take all your sons away. What would you do? Could you imagine if we had video of these events? The mothers weeping, the children frightened and hugging each other, unable to understand what is happening to them, the snot running from their nose, the whips lashing their backs. Imagine the parking lot of Walmart filled with children who are stripped naked and examined and forced to wear red slave garments and white slave hats. What if it was your brother? What if it was your son? Would you put up a coexist sticker on your bumper after that? Just think about the scene. I know you are thinking this can't happen today, but you don't really believe that, do you? Happens every day on The Walking Dead. You suspend disbelief, and your subconscious knows it is possible. In 2015, a Wisconsin man tried to sell his own four-year-old daughter as a sex slave right here in sunshiny Georgia. Just a few miles from where I'm sitting right now, a woman sold her five- and six-year-old daughters to multiple men who raped the girls, often forcing the other girls to watch her sisters torment as they were bloodily raped. These are people enslaving their own family, their own blood. How much more will people hurt strangers? You think it can't happen again, but you know it can. You've seen the images of starving concentration camp survivors, and there's the Armenian genocide, and the Rwandan genocide, and more genocides than you can shake a stick at. Let me tell you, if you found peace in your country, you are a fool to experiment with it. But I digress. The rise of the Ottoman Empire was directly correlated to the progressive decline of the Byzantine Empire. Fragmentation, civil war, population decline, and poverty were the daily bylines of Byzantium in the 1300s. In 1284, the emperor Adronicus was strapped for cash, so he foolishly decided to abolish the imperial navy. The workless sailors immediately defected to the Ottomans and helped them build a fleet while simultaneously showing their new overlords all the weaknesses of the Byzantine coastal defenses. From 1341 to 1371, relentless civil wars burned over the shrinking Byzantine countryside, destroying properties, depopulating regions. And on top of this, the empire was constantly invaded by the Ottomans or even the Serbians. The empire was further devastated by the Black Death. And when the mighty struggle, the weak flee. Byzantium was hemorrhaging people fleeing the never-ending destruction. The entire population of Byzantium shrank to little more than 100,000 people. For the entire empire, remember at the height of its power, Constantinople was home to more than 500,000 people. No more. God himself seemed to make war on the city. Earthquakes after earthquakes destroyed buildings, including the dome of the famous St. Sophia Church in 1346. The city began to resemble modern urban blight. Entire areas where buildings once flourished were reduced to barren fields. An eyewitness said the once majestic city resembled 13 villages separated by vast, overgrown fields rather than one powerful city. The Spaniard Perot Tefer wrote of Constantinople in the late 1300s this way, quote, the emperor's palace was in such a state that both it and the city show well the evils which the people have suffered and still endure. The city is sparsely populated. The inhabitants are dressed in filthy rags and are sad and poor. They show the hardship of their lot, end quote. Almost everything of value had been stripped from the city to pay for the civil wars. The emperor's jewels were pawned. His replacements were made of cheap glass. The silverware was sold, too. 
and the emperor ate on pewter plates like a commoner still. The Ottoman advance continued. Constantinople was encircled when Andrianople, modern-day Erdine, Turkey, fell to the Muslims. This became the new Ottoman capital. The Turks were in Europe for the first time. And in 1371, the Ottomans shattered a Serbian army that had sought to drive the infidels from Europe. The Byzantine emperor, cut off from support, became a vassal of the sultans, contributing troops to the Ottomans, and he was abjectedly forced to gain Ottoman approval for his own governmental appointments. What did Carl Schmitt say? Sovereign is he who decides. Well, we see who's sovereign in Byzantium now. And the Ottomans seemed unstoppable. By 1400, they controlled much of modern-day Ukraine and all of the Balkans up to modern-day Austria and much of modern-day Turkey. By 1394, the siege of Constantinople by the Turks became a regular occurrence, like a season. Oh, the Ottomans are attacking again. I hope it doesn't rain. Still, the Muslims couldn't breach the walls, and the city held on. Literally, it was surrounded by the Ottoman Empire. Byzantine leadership reached out for help from the Christian West. The emperor toured Europe, going as far as England, help. Ever he pleaded for help. Our people are literally enslaved, he told the nobility of Europe. Our walls are the front line in the house of war. And the English and the French royalty, who had never seen a Turk, safe and secure in a land of peace and plenty, smiled politely to the emperor's face and behind his back joked about the empire that was smaller than modern-day Belgium. No help came, and the Turkish vice squeezed like a machine, relentless like twilight. The darkness always comes, but so does the light. And in February 1451, a new sultan, Mehmet, came to power. He was a bisexual who had been characterized as an intelligent tyrant. His one overriding thought was to secure his throne. A contemporary Italian described him this way, quote, the sovereign, Grand Turk Mehmet Bey, is a youth of large stature, an expert at arms, and a veteran of many campaigns with his illustrious father. His aspect was frightening to behold, and he laughed seldom. He's an eager of fame, just like Alexander was, and daily he has Roman and other books read to him. He speaks three languages. He constantly desires to learn the geography of Italy and the seat of the Pope, and this frightens me. He constantly learns information about our geography and our military affairs, and he burns with desire to dominate. Today, he says, the times have changed, and he declares that he will advance from east to west, as in former times the Westerners advanced into the Orient. There must, he says, be only one empire, one faith, and one sovereignty in the world. It frightens my soul to hear him speak. End quote. Mehmet was dreaming of conquering the world, and every time he looked at his map, he saw his empire divided in two, separated by a tiny wedge called Constantinople. He would take the city, and then he would take the world. One empire, one faith, one sovereignty, now and forever. And the man who would be facing Mehmet was Constantine the Eleventh. He was the eighth member of the Palilogos dynasty to sit on the throne since 1261, and their reign had coincided with the disintegration of the empire, and it had been a terrible decline. Byzantium began to resemble a failed state. There was a high admiral, but no fleet, a commander-in-chief, but hardly any soldiers, and the nobility were constantly bickering and squabbling among themselves, and when Constantine came to power, his empire was one in name only. Roger Crowley explains, quote, 
Constantine was an emperor without power. His territory had shrunk to the city and its suburbs and a few islands and a few dominions in Greece itself. This was all that was left of the preeminent city of the Roman Empire. He inherited bankruptcy, a city divided by religious passions and an impoverished and volatile proletariat. The empire was a snake pit of feuding. In 1442, his brother Demetrios marched on the city with Ottoman troops. It lived a half-life as the vassal of the Ottoman emperor, who could lay siege to the city at any time he wished. End quote. An Italian visitor describes the city on the eve of Mehmet's onslaught. Quote, there are merchants from all nations in this city, but none so powerful as the Venetians, who have a sheriff to regulate all their affairs independent of the emperor and his ministers. The Turks also have an officer to watch over their commerce who, like the Venetian sheriff, is independent of the emperor. They even have the privilege that if one of their slaves should run away and take refuge within the city on their demanding him, the emperor is bound to give him up, and the prince must be under great subjection to the Turks, since he pays him a tribute of 10,000 ducats annually. End quote. However, the empire had one thing going for it. And that one thing was Constantine himself. He was a very capable and a loyal man. He believed in duty, and he led from the front. He inherited the problems that plagued the empire, and he did nothing to worsen them and much to try and fix them. We'll see him risk his own life for the city and his soldiers. He was a good man. He reminds me a lot of Faramir from Lord of the Rings. He was just a good guy, almost great, but not quite Aragorn, if you know what I mean. But Constantine was also a veteran soldier. At 17, he had beaten the Turks back from the city walls during the siege of 1422, and during 20 years of constant campaigning, he had sought to reassert Byzantine authority in southern Greece, and after the crusade of Varna in 1446, the Turks struck back. They swept through southern Greece and enslaved 60,000 Greeks, 60,000 in just a few months. Constantine was forced to conclude a humiliating truce, making vows of vassalage and pay a heavy tribute to the Turks. Twenty years of his adult life's work had come to nothing, flushed down the drain. Everything he had worked for was destroyed, but Constantine was dutiful. He picked himself up and he made ready to defend his city from the inevitable Turkish onslaught. He never gave up. From February 1451 to November 1452, Mehmet set about to first completely isolate Constantinople and then to take the city itself. It was the Byzantines who inadvertently gave Mehmet a pretext for invasion. Upon his ascension to the throne, the Byzantines dispatched this message to Mehmet, demanding they receive more pay, more money, for Mehmet's main rival to the throne, the Turkish Prince Orhan, who resided at Constantinople. Now, Mehmet wants to kill this guy, and Constantine is asking for more money to help take care of him. Alright, so listen to this message Constantine sent Mehmet right after his coronation. The Emperor of the Romans, by the way, that's Constantine's name for himself. He still called himself the Emperor of the Romans and claimed to be the legitimate heir to the Roman Empire. Kind of like I'm the first citizen. So anyways... The Emperor of the Romans does not accept the annual allowance of 300,000 aspers for Orhan any longer. This is because Orhan, who is equal to your leader, as a descendant of your first King Osman, has now come of age. Every day many flock to him from your lands, and they call him Lord and Leader. Therefore we ask one of two things. Either double the allowance, or we will release Orhan. End quote. 
So Constantine is telling Mehmet to pay more money for the guy he hates. The guy who the only way he is still breathing is because Constantine is keeping him safe behind the impenetrable walls of the capital. And if you can believe that, it actually gets worse. So this message only confirmed Mehmet's belief that Constantinople must be taken for his throne to ever be secure, let alone to fulfill his dreams of world conquest. Mehmet's chief advisor sent back this chilling reply, a reply that foreshadowed the deaths of thousands and the enslavement of thousands more. Quote, You stupid Greeks! I've had enough of your devious ways. The late sultan was lenient to you. The present sultan is not of the same mind. And if Constantine eludes his bold and imperious grasp, it will be only because God wills it. You are fools to think you can frighten us with your fantasies, and that when the ink on our recent treaty is barely dry, we are not children without strength of reason. If you think you can start something, do so. If you want to proclaim Orhan as Sultan in Thrace, go on ahead. If you want to bring the Hungarians across the Danube, let them come. If you want to recover the places which you lost long ago, try it. But know this, you will make no headway in any of these things. All that you will achieve is to lose what little you have left. Quote. All that you will achieve is to lose what little you have left. I think that's what my wife said to me when I came home late after eating dinner with a friend the other night. Anyway, immediately Mehmet began to prepare for war. He ordered the construction of a large castle a few miles away from Constantinople's wall. War was coming. In late April, the Byzantines were stunned when an Ottoman fleet appeared in front of Constantinople that they didn't even know existed. Six miles away, they could watch the Ottomans constructing a castle that would further isolate Constantinople by the sea. And the Turks desecrated the churches in the surrounding countryside, demolishing them and using the components to build their castle. A modern historian describes the initial stages of the siege this way, quote, Ottoman soldiers started to raid the Christian fields, and Mehmet ordered his men to let their animals graze in the fields of Greeks during the harvest season while simultaneously commanding the local Greeks not to inhibit the animals in any way. In effect, this was destroying the Greeks' livelihood. And the farmers, provoked beyond endurance by the sight of their crops being ravaged, chased the animals out, and a skirmish ensued in which men were killed on both sides. Mehmet ordered his commander, Kara Bey, to punish the inhabitants of the offending village. The following day, a detachment of cavalry surprised the farmers as they harvested their fields and put them all to the sword, down to the last man. And when Constantine heard of the massacre, he closed the city gates and detained all the Ottomans in the city. And Constantine sent one more embassy to the sultan with a message of resignation and defiance. I take refuge in God. If he has decreed and decided to hand over the city to you, who can contradict him or prevent it? If he instills the idea of peace in your mind, I would gladly agree. For the moment, now that you have broken the treaties to which I am bound by oath, let these be dissolved between us. Henceforth, I will keep the city gates closed. I will fight for the inhabitants with all my strength and all my might and all my soul. You may continue in your power until God passes judgment on both of us. End quote. Mehmet simply executed Constantine's emissaries and sent back this cold reply. Either surrender the city 
or stand ready to do battle, end quote. And at the same time, Mehmet sent an Ottoman detachment to ravage the remaining Greek settlements beyond Constantinople's wall. The last remnants were being picked off the bone of the empire. On Thursday, August 31st, 1452, Mehmet's castle was complete. The construction had taken just four months. It was named the Throat Cutter because it cut off Constantinople from the Bosphorus Straits, further isolating the city. Again, we're seeing the importance of the circle. Mehmet is pulling a DNBN foo, slowly closing the grip on Constantinople like an ancient General Jap. Meanwhile, Constantine dispatched messengers to any and all Christian kingdoms with a plea for urgent help, but little aid would come. The European kings debated what they should do while the Turks tightened the noose around the city. And if Europe's kingdoms responded poorly to Constantine's call for aid, her individual citizens unfurled their own banners and answered the call. Steve Rusiman tells the story this way, quote, Two Venetian merchant captains, Gabriel Trevisano and Alviso Diedo, promised to join the struggle. In all, nine Venetian vessels were transformed into warships for the honor of God and the honor of all Christendom. As Trevisano proudly said to the emperor, among the Venetians were some of the most prominent families of that prestigious city. These Venetians offered their services because they found themselves at Constantinople when the war began and were too honorable to make their escape. But there were Genoese who were ashamed of their government's timidity and who came of their own will from Italy to fight for the Christians. And many noble Genoese answered the call, including the three Boccardio brothers, Paolo, Antonio, and Trollio, who equipped and brought at their own expense a small company of soldiers. On January 29, 1453, Giovanni Longo, a famous Genoese soldier belonging to one of the greatest families of the Republic, joined the defenders at Constantinople. He brought with him 700 well-armed and well-trained soldiers. Longo was especially talented at defending walled cities and accordingly was given complete command of the city's walls. He wasted no time carefully inspecting and strengthening the walls himself wherever he found weaknesses. Individual men came from all over Europe. Germans, Catalan sailors, Spanish noblemen swelled the ranks of the Greeks. In addition, there remained when the siege began 26 ships equipped for fighting. It was a small fleet in comparison with the Turkish Armada. The disparity in manpower on land was even greater. In March, Constantine had counted his men who could bear arms. Young boys, old men, monks, priests, anyone. All would bear the sword and defend the city. In the end, there were only 5,000 Greeks able to carry arms. In addition, there were 2,000 foreigners. End quote. Then one day in late March, Giovanni Chiestani Longo looked out in the fields beyond the landward walls and saw the teeming masses of the Sultan's army. To him, it looked like a sea. The Muslims were in constant motion like a windswept lake. Fully 80,000 trained Turkish soldiers prepared to besiege the city. Could you imagine looking from the walls and seeing over 80,000 men just milling about, diligently working, trying to kill you? Moreover, Mehmet had countless irregular units to add to his rank. So there's actually more than 80,000. The 80,000 are his trained soldiers. He actually had irregular extra soldiers there to help him. Next to Longo, a young man, barely 16, began to weep when he saw the Turkish hordes. Giovanni grabbed the man by the arm and laconically commanded, Get back to work. There'll be time enough to cry when you're dead. 
and the young man obeyed. In October 1452, Mehmet's soldiers entered the Peloponnese and sacked the countryside, tying down the local Greek forces to ensure they could not help the stricken capital. At the same time, Mehmet tightened his blockade. Any sailor that attempted to resupply Constantinople would be tortured. Here's what happened to one Venetian captain on November 26. His name was Antonio Rizzo, and he attempted to land a cargo of much-needed food to the beleaguered city. Approaching the newly built Turkish throat-cutter castle, he ignored a warning to lower his sails. The Turks sent a giant stone ball careening into the side of his galley, which shattered it. The captain and 30 survivors made it to shore where they were bound in chains and marched off to face the sultan. The sultan was lenient with most of the common sailors. They were simply beheaded. But Rizzo, the captain, received Mehmet's special attention. He was progressively sodomized by a stake through his anus until it impaled him through his throat. The bodies were left to rot as a warning to others. Inside Constantinople, the church was split. Seeking intervention from Catholic powers, Constantine sought a desperate union of the Eastern Orthodox Church with the Catholic. If union could be achieved, then the Catholic powers would be further obligated to help the Greeks. The problem was the strong anti-unionist sentiment in the city. A majority of people didn't want to integrate their church with the Roman one. Constantine was stuck in the unenviable position of trying to please both the Pope and his fervently orthodox population. He couldn't do both. He chose to please the Pope as Mehmet tightened the blockade on Constantinople. Consequently, Constantine was openly booed in the streets whenever he appeared, but he didn't give a damn. He kept on going no matter what. He dispatched envoys to buy food from wherever he could find it. He made his sullen population work around the clock to repair the neglected sections of the city walls. There was a shortage of stone and no way to get it from outside the city. Constantine organized the recycling of stone from anything within the city. Even old tombstones were used to shore up the defenses. In an act of defiance, he dispatched soldiers into ships to raid Ottoman villages on the coast of the empire. Now, he knows he can't take and hold these villages he's raiding he's just raiding them in mere spite and the captives were sold as slaves in the city this only enraged the turks who vowed total vengeance on constantinople constantine stood on the walls and he gazed at the sea surely the catholic kingdoms would send help and then he saw it there was a lone speck in the distance it grew from a period into an exclamation mark and at length it formed into a large Venetian galley under the command of Giacomo Coco. He had managed to trick his way past the guns at the throat cutter by pretending he had already paid a tribute further upstream. One ancient chronicler recalls, As Giacomo's men approached the Turkish castle, the men began to salute the Ottoman gunners as friends, greeting them and sounding the trumpets and making cheerful sounds, and by the third salute they had got away from the castle, and the water took them down to Constantinople. Never doubt the power of a good bluff. But if Giacomo was a godsend, the devil struck back at Constantine. A few months later, seven Italian ships slipped away from Constantinople in the night with over 700 irreplaceable men. The Italian desertions devastated Constantine. It was like Ralph from the book Lord of the Flies. He did everything right, but it didn't matter. Things always got worse anyway. On April 5th, 1453, 
the Turks moved into their final position. Manette himself was in command. The final battle had begun. Now, before we get into the battle, I need to describe the defenses of Constantinople. The city itself occupies a triangular peninsula. The four-mile-long land walls stretch from the north to the Marmara Sea in the south in a slightly convex curve like the bottom of a spoon. The eight-mile-long walls along the water were single walls. Because of the strong currents around the seaward walls, it would be extremely difficult to storm them. Now, the Byzantines expected the major attack on their landward walls. Most of the land-facing walls were triple stone walls indented with 12 gates at regular intervals. By triple walls, I want you to think about prisons you've seen. There's a fence and then a walkway in the middle and then another fence. That's how these walls were, except they actually stepped up like a like steps, like you're going to a second floor of a house. So the first wall facing the enemy is lower than the second, which is in turn lower than the third. And then there's towers on the upper walls too. And there's considerable space between each wall. So each step, there's there's a space, just like on a stairwell. And you can see a picture on the website. Now, on the outside of the land-facing walls was a deep ditch that was 60 feet in width, running the whole course of the walls. However, the northernmost landward wall was only a single wall. It didn't step up like the rest of them. And that's just a small section on the northernmost part of the landward-facing walls. Here's how one historian described the city's defenses. Quote, The city was protected on the landward side by a chain of 192 towers and a defensive system that comprised five separate zones, 200 feet wide and over 100 feet high, from the bed of the ditch to the top of the towers. However, an anomaly in the defenses existed on the northern end. Here, the triple wall became a single wall. Worse, this single wall was unmoded, making it even more vulnerable. The depth and complexity of the system, the stoutness of its walls, and the height from which it commanded fields of fire rendered the land wall virtually impregnable to any army equipped with the conventional resources of siege warfare in the Middle Ages. There was a problem, though. A problem the Byzantines could not have imagined with the help of a renegade Hungarian. The Turks had developed the largest cannon in the history of the world to this point. It may be one of the largest cannon ever built until this day, and it was all made by a Christian mercenary named Orban. One modern commentator called it the world's first supergun. And during the winter of 1452, Orban crafted his Moloch that would devour his own Christian brothers. The cannon was 27 feet long. The barrel itself had a diameter of 30 inches, big enough for a man to enter on his hands and knees. And simply moving the behemoth required a team of 200 men who lugged it over rivers and gullies at a rate of 2 miles a day. This would be a siege like no other. On April 5th, Mehmet's men took up their final positions outside the city walls. On April 6th, blood began to flow. A ragged band of irregular troops attempted to storm a weak spot in the Christian walls. Giovanni Longo simply walked out from the walls to meet them, like an epic movie where your uncle says, It wouldn't have happened like that in real life. There's no way he could have done that. 
but this is real life, and it really didn't happen like that. It was no contest. It was like Batman fighting Joker's foot soldiers. Giovanni and his seasoned warriors put the ill-trained irregulars to flight, killing some and wounding more. Meanwhile, 250 yards away from the city walls, Turkish sappers began to construct mines across the no-man's land between the two armies. Their work would take weeks. At the same time, the Turks began to fill in the great ditch that ran along the wall at regular intervals. This was dangerous work. Giovanni studied their every movement spasmodically. Following no regular pattern, he and his men would burst forth like tigers, cutting down Turks and taking captives for intelligence, and then disappearing into the night back on the wall. You need to remember this. Every day, every hour, there is constant skirmishing at the front. Mostly, the Byzantines fought from the walls with arrows and crossbolts, but spasmodically they would venture forth, take captives, and kill a raiding party of the Turks. And as Mehmet impatiently waited for his heavy guns, he began to reduce the isolated pockets of Greek resistance outside of Constantinople itself, laying waste to every man who resisted. At Therapia, the Greeks held out for two days of heavy fighting until the cannon destroyed the walls of their fortress. The forty men who surrendered were impaled and left to rot as a warning. The same thing happened at a castle at Studius. 36 men were taken to Constantinople and impaled in sight of the defenders. The Christians on the city walls lifted their hands to heaven and screamed oaths of vengeance through tears in their eyes, their throats hoarse from the yelling. In an early April, Batagol, Mehmet's admiral, seized the island of Principo, where there was a fortress manned by 30 men who refused to surrender. Batagol piled brushwood against the walls and set the fortress on fire. Most of the men were burned alive. Those who surrendered were slain where they stood. They got off lucky for Batagul standards. The entire population was sold into slavery. And on April 11th, Mehmet's large guns finally arrived. He grouped them into 15 batteries supported by smaller guns, and they began to load stone balls that ranged in weight from 200 pounds to 1,500 pounds. On April 12th, the guns began to bark death at the defenders of Christ in the formerly impregnable walls of Constantinople. The defenders were shell-shocked, their eyes gazing deliriously. An eyewitness describes the scene, quote, and when the gun's fuses were lit, there was first a terrifying roar and violent shaking of the ground for a distance of miles, and a din such as has never been heard before. Then, with a monstrous thundering and an awful explosion of flame that illuminated everything round about and scorched the men operating the cannons, the wooden wad was forced out by the hot blast of dry air and propelled the stone ball out. The stone struck the wall, which it immediately shook and demolished, and it was itself shattered into many fragments, and the pieces were hurled everywhere, dealing death to anyone nearby. Sometimes it destroyed a complete portion of wall, sometimes part of a tower, and nowhere was the wall strong enough to withstand it or to hold out against such a force as the stone ball." End quote. The walls that had stood through innumerable sieges for century upon century, the impenetrable walls, they were the walls that were falling. It had worked. The walls were crumbling down, but the walls weren't the only thing crumbling. 
Mehmet's guns rained death into the heart of Constantinople, mowing down houses and churches, cutting through civilians the way a lawnmower slices through grass. No one had ever seen or heard of an artillery bombardment like this before. Their whole defense had centered on the impregnability of the city walls, and now they were crumbling around them like cupcakes in a toddler's hands. People wept in the streets and crammed into churches, pleading for forgiveness. An eyewitness remembered civilians voicing petitions and prayers, wailing and exclaiming, Lord, Lord, we moved away from you, God. All that fell upon us in your holy city was accomplished through righteous and true judgments for our sins. Do not betray us in the end to your enemies. Do not destroy your worthy people. And throughout the city, the cries and pleadings rang endlessly, running on instinct like unthinking machines. And Constantine was brave through it all. He toured the walls every hour, comforting the common soldiers and exhorting them to resist until the very end and put their trust in God, not the walls made by men, but the Holy One who made man and the walls and everything in the earth itself. One poet puts these words in Constantine's mouth, quote, My brothers, listen to the sound. Do you hear it? It's the wailing of our gray-haired mothers, the pleading of our virgin sisters. Do you want to see your own sons enslaved? Do you want your daughters to play the whore in the sultan's harem? Come, the stone walls are falling. Fill them with your stone hearts. And I tell you truly, God can raise up armies from these stones to defend this city, but he has chosen you. Be worthy, my mustard seeds. Be worthy, and God will give you victory in this life or the next." End quote. And the defenders tried to knock out the Ottoman cannon with their own guns, but they found the walls and towers were chronically unsuitable as gun platforms. Shooting their own cannon on the walls actually did more damage to them than any benefit they could gain in damage to the enemy. Mehmet refused to allow his gunners to rest. They worked around the clock in shifts for days on end, sending a never-ceasing stream of balls lasering into the city walls, and this continued from April 12th to April 18th. The strain of continuous fire and the impure metals of the cannon took their toll. During the first week, Orban, the Christian mercenary who designed the mega cannon for Mehmet, begged to pull the gun out of service and recast it. No, keep firing, was Mehmet's cold reply. Orban lit the fuse one last time and the great gun burst into pieces, killing and wounding many, including Orban. He had betrayed his people and gambled his life for riches. Now he was facing his maker in the next life. His wages filled Mehmet's pockets. He had gained nothing. So much for 30 shekels. The bombardment and the skirmishing continued for a week. One section of the wall was almost completely reduced to rubble, but Mehmet had it counted on Giovanni Longo. Giovanni had been eating biscuits this whole time. He had found a way to quickly repair the damage. A makeshift replacement was constructed of stakes, and on this foundation the defenders dumped in any material they had. Stones, timber wood, bushes, and earth were moved into the breach, not to mention rubble. And when the makeshift walls were tall enough, Giovanni placed barrels filled with dirt at regular intervals that served as firing ports, shielding the Christians as they fought. These were more than simple band-aids, but an actual solution to the problem of new artillery. The stone balls that had devastated the walls simply got stuck in the soft earth and could no longer penetrate Giovanni's makeshift barrier. At the moat, the struggle continued. Relentlessly, the Ottomans filled it with material. 
At night, the defenders sallied forth and cleared the moat out again. The fighting was close quarters. One Italian soldier recalled, The Turks fought bravely at close quarters, so they all died. The Christians relentlessly poured arrows and bolts into the Turks, and the damage was a carnival of death. The defenders used their cannon as giant shotguns. The Ottomans unprotected and in the open were butchered by the Christians. It was almost as if they were lining up deliberately to be slaughtered. A Venetian who was there recalls, quote, And when one or two of the Turks were killed, at once other Turks came and carried off the dead ones, hoisting them over their shoulders as one would a pig, without caring how near they came to the city walls. But our men, who were on the ramparts, shot at them with guns and crossbows, aiming at the Turk who was carrying away his dead comrade, and both of them would fall to the ground dead. And then another Turk would come, and take them both away, not fearing death himself, but preferring to let ten of themselves be killed, rather than suffer the shame of leaving a single Turk corpse in front of the city walls. On April 18th, Mehmet decided the time had come for the final assault. He would take the city in one massive, overwhelming blow. Two hours after sunset, under the light of the moon, Mehmet ordered forward his crack troops to the rhythmic thudding of camelskin drums and the braying of pipes and the clashing of cymbals amplified by flares, shouts, and battle cries. The army surged forward like a tsunami. The heavy infantry and the bowmen and the javelin men and all the imperial foot guards all converged on one section of crumbled wall. The defenders took up their positions as the terrible cries of civilians filled the night air behind them. Under a heavy covering fire of cannon, guns, and bows, the Ottomans crossed the moat, and withering volleys made it impossible to stand on the earth ramparts, so that the Janissaries were able to reach the walls with ladders and battering rams. They feverishly worked to break down the makeshift barriers Giovanni had thrown together to block their advance, but there was a problem. The land sloped downward, and the gap in the wall was so small that the Turks tended to bunch together, becoming a disorganized and frightened mass. Moreover, the night was dark, and the men became confused in the fighting. Nestor Iskander was there, and he remembers, quote, the clatter of cannons, the roar of the church bells sounded the alarm, the cracking of arms like lightning flashing from weapons as the crying and sobbing of the people made one believe the sky itself and the earth had joined together in one and they both trembled together. One could not hear another man's words. Weeping, screaming, the cries and sobs of the people, the roar of the cannons and the pealing of the bells combined into one din resembling a great thunder. And the smoke thickened, and it covered the city, and the air burned your nostrils when you breathed it. A man would take a drink, and immediately his throat would be parched from the smoke-filled air. <coughs> the armies could not see each other, and they did not know who they fought. It was all confusion. End quote. Giovanni led the defense. The momentum of the attackers first slowed and then died down. They were literally cut to pieces by Giovanni and his stout Italians. After four hours, the Ottomans retreated, and the darkness was filled with the wraith-like sounds of dying men. No one knows how many Turks died in that one-night battle. The first battle was over, but the war was just starting. And Mehmet had prepared for this war a long time. Whereas most would-be conquerors sought to take the city from the landward side, Mehmet planned to assault it from all sides, which meant he needed a navy. 
He had started building it a year before the war began. By repairing and updating old ships as well as building new ones, Mehmet was able to amass approximately 15 full war galleys composed of triremes, 75 smaller fustai, and about 25 heavy barges. If you include smaller boats, the entire fleet numbered about 140 boats in all compared to the Christian total of 37. But the Christians were led by the Italians. And they were some of the best sailors in the world at this time. On April 12th, the Ottoman fleet made as if it would attack the city, but withdrew two miles upriver after taking the measure of the Italian fleet that went out to oppose them. Even the Italians were dismayed when they saw how large the Turkish fleet was. It was the start of an attritional war. The Italians constantly jockeyed to find an Ottoman weakness and exploit it. The Turks sought to pin the Italians down and annihilate them. What actually happened was continuous skirmishing, a dance that never joined hands. On April 18th, the Turks launched the Navy's first attack. The Italians were waiting for them, screening the harbor. There was little room for maneuver in the tight space. The Turks came within a bow shot of the Italians and then slowed down and hit them with a volley of fire from bows and cannon. Stone balls, metal bolts, and flaming arrows swept the Italian decks. Immediately after the volley, the Ottomans pushed in for the kill. They planned to latch onto the Italian ships with grappling hooks, climb on board the Christian boats with ladders, and slaughter the infidels to the last men. But they didn't count on one thing. The Italian ships were taller than their own. And as the Turks scaled up the ladders, their comrades behind them threw wave after wave of arrows, pikes, and spears at the defenders. The Italian ships were too stoutly made. The Italian ships sloughed off cannonballs the way rich women ignored poor men. It was like it wasn't even happening. The sweat of the master craftsmen in Genoa and Venice saved the city. The architect, reclining in his office and smoking his pipe back in Genoa, had saved Byzantium and the sailors and marines on board the Christian ships could hurl down missiles from the bow and stern platforms. Volleys of iron javelins, arrows and stones fell on the Turks like a hailstorm. Not only that, but the Italians had simple hoist devices they used to sling giant rocks into the smaller Muslim ships. Sinking boats and smashing men into bloody pulp. Worse still, the wounded Turks fell into the water and struggled to swim, water worming through their mouths and noses, flooding their lungs with death. Finally, after hours of bloody fighting, the Italians turned the flanks of the Turks. The Turkish commander, fearing total disaster, retreated. He lost the first battle, but he saved his navy. Sometimes, retreat is the best option. Now I want to tell you a story that indicates how bloody this siege had become, how ruthless Mehmet, in particular, was to his own men. The Pope, hoping to stave off total defeat for Constantinople, had hired four huge transport ships laden with food and military supplies and commissioned them to relieve the city and run the blockade. On April 18th, Mehmet's land forces and sea forces were repulsed with heavy losses. I just told you about that. Then the next day, on the morning of April 19th, while Mehmet is fuming that he hadn't taken the city, the Pope's giant relief ships moved towards the city unopposed. Small boat patrols reported the Genoan intruders to Mehmet, who frothed at the mouth with rage. Then he sent the simple message to his navy commander. Either take the sailing ships and bring them to me, or never come back alive! The Turkish fleet obeyed. Like ants, 
They flooded out of their nest. They would conquer or die. The cream of Mehmet's janissaries, from his own personal guard, prepared to take the unbelievers' ships. The Turks filled the sea between the Italian relief force and the city. The Genoans never wavered. They came straight on like samurai, like warriors, worthy of remembrance. Drink a toast to them tonight. Picture the scene. It's like four football players facing down five opposing teams. It's fourth quarter and everything's on the line. They can't possibly win, but they snap the ball and run their hearts out anyway in mere spite to show the world how Genoans can conquer or die. A modern historian recalls what happened next. Quote, the sound of beating drums and the braying of horns spread across the water as the galley fleet closed in. With the masts and oars of hundreds of ships converging on the four Italians, the result seemed inevitable. The population of the city spread out on the walls and bit their hands until they bled while they watched the spectacle. The Turkish commander ordered the giant Italian transports taken with fire. Stone shot whistled through the air, bolts, javelins, and incendiary arrows were poured up at the ship from all directions, but the Genoan ships kept on like nothing was happening. If they were personified, the boats themselves would have laughed at the puny Turkish fire. The Muslims couldn't believe it. As the Genoans smashed the Turkish line like Herschel Walker, the battle turned into a running skirmish. The Ottomans tried to board the transports, but the sea was choppy and the Genoan ships were tall. Many men drowned before they even touched the Italian craft, and the Italian decks were crenellated like a castle, and they poured missiles into the face of the attackers. That's when disaster struck. The wind gave out. The Genoans lost their speed advantage. Now the sheer press of the Turks would take their toll. The Christian ships could literally almost touch the walls of the city, but they hadn't made it yet. Again, the Muslims poured flaming shot and cannon into the Genoan ships. Nothing could penetrate the hulls. Then the order came, Board the ships! Board the ships! And Amon screamed Quranic verses. And when the blaspheming unbelievers plot against thee to wound thee fatally, or to kill thee, or to drive thee forth, remember they plot. But Allah also plotteth, and Allah is the best of plotters. A swarm of Muslim boats rushed to the Italian transports like magnets. The sea congealed into a struggling mass of interlocking mass and holes that looked, according to the ancient writer Ducas, like dry land itself. Triremes rammed into the doughty transports. Infantry flowed like water up the boarding bridges with grappling hooks and ladders. Soldiers methodically cut into the Italian holes with axes, painstakingly trying to force a hole into the ships. The fight turned into an MMA fight to the death, and the battle was now a series of Vicious hand-to-hand -hand battles from above. The defenders, protected by good armor, smashed the heads of their assailants with clubs as they emerged over the ship's sides. They cut off scrabbling hands with cutlasses. They hurled javelins, spears, pikes, and stones down on the seething mass below. They did their bit to show the Turks Allah's paradise. And from higher up in the crow's nest, they threw missiles from catapults. And a train of stones hurled down on the close-packed Turkish fleet. Crossbowmen picked off chosen targets with well-aimed bolts, and seamen used cranes to hoist and drop weighty stones onto the light hulls of the Muslim longboats. 
damaging and sinking many. The air was a confused mass of sounds, shouts and cries, the roaring of cannon, the snapping of oars, the shattering of stone on wood, steel on steel, the whistling of arrows falling so fast, quote, the oars couldn't be pushed down into the water because of the arrows packed around the boats, end quote. The sounds of blades tearing into flesh, of crackling fire and human pain, screams, terrible screams, agony. For two hours the men fought in intense, religious, infused violence. End quote. The medieval historian and monk Credo Vulos says what happened next. Quote, there was great shouting and din on all sides as they encouraged each other, hitting and being hit, killing, being killed, pushing, being pushed, blaspheming, scolding, threatening, groaning. It was all a terrible noise. And yet, although the Italians in the transport struggled bravely, those in the fleet were getting the better of them through sheer force of numbers, for they fought by turns, relieving one another, fresh ones taking the places and work of those who had been wounded or killed, and those on the transports would have lost hope of fighting successfully, because the battle had gone on so long, had not a south wind drove the Genoan ships along with great force. In a brief time, they left behind the Muslims, which could not keep up. Therefore, the fight died down, and they got safely away to the other Italian ships at the entrance of the harbor, and thus, in spite of their own fears, were saved. Mehmet had watched the entire battle. He raged at one and all, and ripped his own clothes in his fury. Night fell, and he ordered his fleet to retire. Two days later, Mehmet confronted the admiral who had lost the battle. One of his eyes was missing from the struggle, and he could barely stand on his own feet. And Mehmet bellowed at him, If you cannot take four ships, how will you hope to take the entire fleet? And the admiral replied, You know, it was visible to all, that with the ram of my galley I never let go of the front of the enemy's ship. I fought fiercely all the time, and my men are dead, but there are many dead on the Italian side as well. Mehmet cursed his commander and ordered him impaled. All of his officers threw themselves at Mehmet's feet and begged for the Navy commander's life to be spared. He had fought bravely the entire time and never relented. The death sentence was commuted, but the Navy commander was still punished. In front of his men, he was lashed 100 times. He was stripped of his rank and of his property, and he passed out of the pages of history. And that's where we'll end our show this month. The Turks have been repulsed on both land and sea. Thousands are dead and wounded. Countless men have drowned, and this is just the beginning. Join us next month as we recount the thrilling conclusion to the Battle of Constantinople. We'll make your eardrums bleed. And that's it for me here at Battlecast. Remember to join us next month as we remember the men who gave their lives at Constantinople. And if you're a Christian, all these men gave their life for you. I want you to know that I'm not going to stop bringing you the stories of epic battles that no one else will. Chris can get sick and stop. Other podcasts can stop. You can stop listening to the show. But the men whose stories we tell on this show deserve remembrance. And I'm going to keep their memories alive come hell or high water. I don't give a damn. You can email those battle requests to thebattlecastnet at gmail.com. Don't forget to give us a five-star review on iTunes. Especially you old hands who've been listening for a few months now. You know who you are. All right, guys, once again, I'm Luke, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.